0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson, joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hey there, Jane. When you think of the Outback, what
1: comes to mind? Uh, Crocodile Dundee.
0: Oh, very <laughs> nice. Very nice. I think of koalas, yeah. and kangaroos, mostly animals. Boomerangs, Didgeridoos.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> love those. And, um, you know, funny yeah. sidebar to that. Those are actually created in this multi-step process. And the first is finding a piece of wood that's been hollowed out by termites. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> it's not quite like making an electric guitar. but no. it's, You know, similar nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. So the Outback, I think, is a pretty picturesque place in many of our minds. Or at least it's one that, you know. Kind of its adventure and, and fun and, you know, merriment. Australia seems, on the whole, like a very merry sort of place. Yeah, sure. It's, yeah. It's sunny. There's water. Mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman came from there and she's pleasant. Steve Irwin. You know, so, yeah. That's yeah, kind of sad now. But as picturesque
1: as we may envision the outback, Australia has a, a pretty sad history. That's right. And, um, it all comes down to the people who were there before the European settlers. And we're talking about the Aborigines, of course, who got to the Australian
0: continent somewhere between about 40,000 and 60,000 years ago, and then British, by
1: contrast, came in 1768. That's right. And they were an interesting, the Aborigines were an interesting anomaly that they were isolated from any other major civilization for so long. They were actually still hunter and gatherers when um, the Europeans arrived and they hadn't like perfected any sort of uh, farming technique or anything like that. And they were sort of attached to the land in a lot of both religious and sort of just, you know, sustenance, you know. Um, and they had sort of the same, a similar sense of property that American Indians have, if you're familiar with that, is that um, they didn't have the same sense that Europeans did, basically. And that made it easier for Europeans to come in and sort of push them out of the way.
0: Right. And you mentioned their connection to the land being a spiritual one. And that's mm-hmm. very true because. Their creation myths tie them very strongly to the land because they see divinity and natural aspects of the land and the landscape. And so when the Europeans came and essentially pushed them away, Mm -hmm. it was an insult not only to their spirituality but also to their way of life because as hunter-gatherers, if they were forced into areas of the land that didn't offer any sustenance, well, there wasn't much that they could do because they had no farming
1: knowledge. Right, and And they had like their own own ways of of gathering, and if they were pushed into a new area, they weren't sure where to go to get the best sustenance.
0: And you mentioned that there were a lot of connections between what happened with the Native Americans and the United States and what happened with the British and the Aborigines, and you're absolutely right because... If you recall when the Native Americans were introduced to diseases that American settlers had that, Mm -hmm. you know, could be innocuous to us, could wipe out, you know,
1: a third of their population, the same thing happened there. That's right. And Aborigines would get like smallpox and tuberculosis and things like that. And so both the starvation that was going on and these diseases, it really impacted the population of Aborigines Severely,
0: severely. Even around 2006, after the Aborigine culture started to come back and, and really be restored on the Australian continent, I think they estimated that only about 2% of the population why is made up of aborigines, which staggering, is yeah. staggering and, and sadly ironic considering that they were the ones who were there in the first place. Yeah. But if we get back to when Australia was, I guess if you want to use the word discovered, you you could, by James Cook. That was seventeen sixty eight and he called it New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And he was there for an instant. He saw it, and then he moved on. <laughs> and this is the same guy who would go on to explore Polynesia, and he was the one who also found Easter Island. So he was down in this part of the world, and it was very much about entitlement and, and being territorial. He saw this land, he staked it out, mm-hmm. but then
1: no one visited for a couple generations after that. They had no reason to be there. That's right, and the English actually didn't want, didn't have any need for it until a little bit later when um, they w- in the past they had been sending their debtors, their prisoners over to the American colonies. And as we all know, 1776, the American colonies were, you know, declared independence and they they didn't want to take any more of the English debtors basically, understandably. And so Europe, or England, it's, um, I should say, had all these prisoners where they wanted to send them someplace and so they were like, well, Australia's there, let's just send them over there. And it was a long voyage, but it filled that purpose. But it's kind of sad that
0: prisoners would trump any claims to land that the native Aborigines had, but that's exactly how it played out. And mm-hmm. so the, abor- the Aborigines who were in the way were beaten or killed or... Made, put into slavery. Put into slavery. Yeah. And the women were sometimes made sex slaves. Mm-hmm. And so we see the population beginning to really, really dwindle. And those who did survive, I think, were at a higher likelihood to become alcoholics, or yeah. to be depressed, or to engage in criminal activity. And this continued well until the 20th
1: century. That's right. And the government, or the Australian government at this time, saw this these risks that the Aborigines were were encountering, and they're like, we we should help out. We should make them so they have a better upbringing. And so that's when they s- instituted these laws that basically uh, legalized the stealing of aboriginal children from their families. And this took place from about 1910
0: through 1970. It affected nearly 100,000 children. And again, this wasn't under one prime minister's administration, or it wasn't just one person who masterminded the plan. It continued through several generations. And I think that it was sincerely a benevolent idea. These people wanted to keep the Aborigines alive, but they didn't want to do it by preserving their culture. They wanted to do it by taking the Aboriginal
1: children. That's right. And, and there was a sense of, uh, of eugenics, I guess, behind it as well. They wanted to breed out the Aboriginal color from them. Right. Precisely. They wanted to assimilate them into white,
0: non-Indigenous Australian culture. Yeah. And... They did this in a number of underhanded ways. And mm-hmm. no matter if you thought it was a benevolent plan, the manner in which it was executed it was certainly not benevolent at all. They would kidnap children. They would um, have parents sign them away. They would give them forms and feign that they were for uh vaccination. Thank you, vaccination. Yeah, yeah.
1: And in reality, the aboriginal parent was signing away custody of his or her child. That's right. And they were like, sometimes when kids were sent to hospitals or whatever, they would leave them there. And um, and then the uh, Australian government would legalize taking the children from there and telling the parents that the ch- child had died. And that's what's the most tragic, is that these mm-hmm. families underwent, you know, a massive
0: grief thinking yeah. that they had lost their children. And
1: likewise, the children were sometimes told that they were orphans.
0: Yeah, which, which had to hurt, too. And yeah think about being an Aboriginal child growing up in an all white family or Mm -hmm. in one of these orphanages and knowing how different you are from everyone else and and being
1: treated often very differently.
0: Exactly. A lot of them were subject to molestation or they were ridiculed or they were abused in other ways. And it's, it was a very stark difference between the Aboriginal children and and the white children, because as Jane mentioned before, the Aborigines had evolved in isolation. So they all have very specific facial features and skin Mm -hmm. colorations. And so, A lot of the accounts today, I I think that some of the Aborigines say that, you know, on the basis of their appearance, they were made to feel inferior and ostracized in in social
1: and academic settings. And this went on for so long throughout the 20th century, uh, even while the American um, Civil Rights Movement was going on. And could you say, Candace, that um, the American Civil Rights Movement actually kind of instigated uh, the reform in Australia? Yeah, that's an absolute fact. and. While we may think of Australia being an ocean away,
0: it actually ideologically was very closely tied to the American civil rights movement. And sure. that was used as a model for the Aborigines to reclaim their land and, and reclaim their rights. And they did. They got their voting rights and they got um, permission to be included in the Australian census, which may not sound like a big deal, but it was because mm-hmm. it meant that they were marked as Australian citizens. And That's they right. had Finally, before. they had gotten equality. Yeah. And then in 1995, this investigation was launched into the members of the Stolen Generation, as these children were called. And in 1997, there was a report called Bringing Them Home, and it was sponsored by the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission. And they basically outlined about 50 different steps that the government could take to essentially make reparations for what happened to these members of the Stolen Generation.
1: That's right. And the government didn't really... Um, act on these immediately, or at least there were there were problems um, with uh, even making an apology um, created a problem for the political leaders in Australia, because once they did that, they felt that they were exposing themselves to lawsuits, basically, against the government.
0: And they had a reason to feel that way, because one of the steps, one of the four steps that the commission outlined was compensation. The others were restitution, the rehabilitation of the wrong parties, and a guarantee against future violations. And so, Prime Minister back then was John Howard, and he was very adamant and insisting that there would be no apology. Mm-hmm. And on the grounds that the movement may be seen today as culturally irresponsible back then, it was, you know, genuinely done as a benevolent thing to save yeah. the
1: Aboriginal population. That's right. They had good intentions, um, which I, you can argue, but I, it all goes to show where good intentions can bring you sometimes. Exactly. But there was an
0: apology issued. By the new Prime Minister, that's Kevin Rudd, and that wasn't too long ago,
1: February thirteenth, two thousand eight. That's right. And in the meantime, actually, there haven't been many reparations made uh to the anyone in any member of the stolen generation, except for one successful lawsuit in the late nineties. And that was a man named Bruce
0: it's Trevor or Trevorrow. I'm not sure how his last name is pronounced, but essentially he was thirteen months old when his mother took him to a hospital on Christmas Day uh, for stomach pains, and he was kept. And the mother was told that um, either he had died or he couldn't be given back to her. And she managed to keep her other children, mm-hmm. and they were raised in the Aboriginal culture. And she went several times back to the hospital to pursue Bruce and his whereabouts. And because there was such an intense paper trail between her requests for permission to see him and mm-hmm. for her search for him, and because Bruce's siblings had grown up and hadn't succumbed to a life of alcoholism or crime, which were some of the popular claims against the Aborigines, he was able to wage a successful case against the government. That's right, and he won. He did. The amount of, I think, four hundred forty seven thousand US dollars, which may seem like a small fee for all that he endured, but it's it's something and it is to this day the only reparation that has been made. Except in Tasmania. Tasmania does have a
1: fund for reparations. That's right and um, there's actually other lawsuits um uh kind of related in terms of by the I think around the 70s um, there were laws passed where aborigines could actually um, reclaim land that had belonged to their ancestors um, but this actually came into a, be a problem, um, a conflict with their religion because in order to show that they were actually there uh, they, their ancestors were there they would have to tell their history which meant um, telling, like revealing some secrets about their religion which is very tied with their history and uh, and this was, was wrong according to their religion because these secrets were supposed to be kept from the Outsiders. And so it
0: came down to a matter of, you know, revealing that sacred part of their lives to a modern society that wouldn't understand or getting the land back. And it's it's still, you know, a pretty heated debate and it's a very charged climate right now. So we'll have to keep our eyes and ears on the news for what happens with other possible reparations for members of the Stolen Generation. But if you want to read more about the Stolen Generation and other aspects of Aboriginal culture, be sure to visit (laughs) HowStuffWorks.com.